Well, I wasn't raised in a Christian. How many of you guys were not raised in a Christian home? Anyone? Okay. So that's, um, that means I didn't go to church, didn't own a Bible, we didn't go to Wana, all that good stuff. But my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. If you haven't noticed, I'm Chinese. <laughs> no Asians here? So um, I'm Chinese. My parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. I could distill that to three things. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, acted different. I had different interests. God, I know, it's so cute. <laughs> It was all downhill from there, believe me. <laughs> so I never fit in with the other American boys. I looked different. I acted different. I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of those gifts. So from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. When I was uh, just about nine years old, uh, this is the first time that I realized that I was not only just a little different in the way that I looked, different in my interests, but I had these attractions that I never asked for. The first time I realized that was when I came across pornography at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, without that birds and the bees talk with your child. I mean, who thinks you have to have the birds and the bees talk at nine, right? And yet, actually, that is becoming more and more common at which children, youth, come across. I wasn't even looking for it. And it found me, I could say. It found me. I mean, and that's, that's a scary thing. You never have to go looking for sin. Sin will find you. I bet many of you guys realize that. You weren't even looking, and it found you. I was at a friend's house, a trusted family friend's house, and they had pornography stashed away, and of course, as being a nine-year-old curious kid, I came across it. And that was the first time that I came across those feelings. Unfortunately, today, pornography has become the master of many youth and adults, men and women. Many of us don't know, or many adults don't know how easily accessible it is on the internet and do little or nothing to protect themselves and their children from it. Did you know that the pornography industry is a multi-billion not million, multi-billion dollar industry. Um, for example, if we were to take uh, like the television industry, the major television networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, if we were to combine their revenues, their revenues is $6.2 billion. That's a lot of money. The major league sports, baseball, basketball, hockey, football, if we were to combine those revenues of the players, coaches, etc., $12 billion. The pornography industry blows these out of the water. $57 billion. We are in an all-out war with the pornography industry, and to be honest, we're losing miserably. And I'm talking about Christians. Even scarier, did you know, according to some statistics, nine out of 10 children aged 8 to 16, have already viewed pornography on the internet, often by accident. How many of you guys work with youth? Maybe youth group or maybe you're a youth leader. Youth group is, that's junior high and up, right? Isn't, isn't that what it is? Um, what, what do you call under junior high? Just kids, 
kids programs or whatever. See, I wasn't raised in, 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 in church, so I don't really know like the breakdowns. I just call, I call y'all just kids, right? You're younger than me, y'all are kids. Uh, so youth group is junior high, which is what? Uh, eighth, ninth, and so that's 15 year old. So by junior high, according to st statistics, nine out of 10 of them have already viewed pornography. And you know what's even worse? Often by accident getting on the internet by accident, they come across it. So if that isn't scary enough, how about this? One out of five children, that's 20%, age 10 to 17, have received a sexual solicitation over the internet by a predator. And many times they had no idea and didn't think anything was wrong. I hope that wakes us up. How many of you guys hope to have a family and kids. We're in a new world. I'm, I'm sure many of you guys are, have, are experiencing the ramifications of even being exposed, maybe sometimes unwanted, maybe just because we were looking of pornography. I think we need to face it head on. I think that um, the more we keep it in secret, the more we keep it hidden, that's how Satan works best. One of the first things, men, we need to admit is, I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own. If we could, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? We need to admit, we're not perfect. Second, we need to realize we need help from Christ and his body, the church. You can't do it on your own. I think it also, there's some good tools out there that can help us. Um, my parents and I, we advocate something we call double internet protection. That's having both a filter and an accountability program. And there's a lot of great programs out there. And I know some of you are familiar with them and you might be thinking, well, those cost money. And I, got, I ain't got no money. Right? You're a student. You're a poor student. As my friend Rosario Butterfield calls uh, college students, um, college students are uh, middle class homeless people. <laughs> Essentially, right? You guys don't have a lot of expendable money to, to pay for uh, these good tools like filters and accountability programs. So there's some really good ones, Safe Eyes, Net Nanny, uh, Covenant Eyes. Those, those are some really good ones that also have uh, apps for your phones. And there's a lot of new ones coming out as well. Um, but I don't know if you guys know of some free things. How many of you guys like things that are free, right? All Christians, we love free things. So there's two uh, things that I want you to know. Many of you guys don't know these. There's an internet filter that's free, caninewebprotection.com. And um, you can get that at this website. Also, X3 Watch, um, it used to be free, and uh, now they have, they're pushing their filter, and they have a good filter as well. Uh, but they, if you go to that special link, um, actually, I need to double check, because I haven't just double checked in the past, past few months, because they took it off their homepage, but they were still offering it for free. It's a free accountability program. So it's not a filter. Um, you, it won't block things, but it will actually log in when questionable sites are viewed. We have to 
be proactive. Holiness does not happen on its own. It's not also done by our own strength. It's done by God's grace, but there are tools that enable us to then, because these tools, Filter and Accountability Program, help us to invite others into our life to hold us accountable. Also, I think we need to talk openly and frankly about sex in the body of Christ, in church, and at home. Silence isn't, is no longer an option. So for me, with pornography, feeling my desires, my same-sex attractions, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs in Chicago. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. So at that point, I decided to go home and break the news to my parents, and I told them I am gay. It was my declaration. This is who I am. Well, my mom, being a maybe typical tiger mom, wanted to control the situation, and she gave me an ultimatum. And she said, you must either choose the family or choose that. She couldn't even say it. Well, for me, this was not a choice. This is who I am. And I thought, if you can't accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. So I left home, and I went back to Louisville, Kentucky. Devastated my mind. The timing couldn't have been any worse. After years of unresolved issues, after years of living as non-Christians, my parents' marriage was a disaster. And they had actually began the paperwork for a divorce. So my mom was at the end of a rope. She found no more reason to live. And on the next day, she had resolved to do the unthinkable. She was going to end her life. For some reason, though, she felt the need to go see a minister who gave her a little pamphlet on homosexuality. So she bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where she planned to say goodbye to me for the last time before ending it all. So with only her purse and the pamphlet, she got on the train thinking that death was the only answer to all her problems. Never being much of a reader, on the train, she began reading that little pamphlet, which shared with her the plan of salvation, that all of us, all of us are sinners. And yet, in spite of our sin, the God of the universe still loves us. And God opened up the eyes of her heart to see that just as God can love her in spite of her sin, she could love me, her gay son. And on this train, my mother gave her life to Christ. As she looked out the window, and I don't know if you've ever gone from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky, but to do that, you have to go through Indiana. And Indiana, unlike Montana, is really, really flat. Right, Jenny? It's really, really, really flat. And it's boring to drive through and drive down the roads because you see the same thing over and over and just corn, corn, corn. <laughs> well, on that May morning, as she was on the train flying through in Indiana, on the train, I'm mean, going really fast through Indiana, passing by all these fields, it seemed like she could see for miles. It was spring, so the crop was coming up, everything was green and lush, and the sun was shining down. And as she looked for miles at the wonders of creation, at that moment, she knew that there must be a God.
my mother who was not searching for the Lord was found by her loving creator. As she looked out at the wonders of creation, she realized that there was a God. One of my mother's favorite verses today is Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and loving nature, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. My mother had no excuse. She knew that there was a God. You see, my mom had gone to Louisville, Kentucky, expecting to end her life. And in reality, she did. Another, another one of her favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Within a few months, my father also gave his life to Christ. And Christ living in them prepared my parents for the difficult years ahead as I headed further and further away from God. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, I need to be really clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. Not all gays and lesbians are promiscuous. Some are, some are not. But that certainly is part of my story, and I want to tell you my whole story and be honest about that. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs but like y'all, I didn't have money. So if I was going to do drugs, I'd have to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist, and he knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they are going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But the sad reality is many people will go to church on Sundays here in America and worship God, but then they will return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, parents are making their kids do the same. Think about this. Maybe your friends, when they were growing up, were their parents putting more emphasis upon their kids getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school? 
Or should Christian parents be putting the most emphasis upon our children following Jesus? It's no wonder why the majority of kids who grow up in church go to youth group. When they get to college, they leave their faith behind because maybe they were never worshiping God in the first place. Nothing, my friends, is more important than our children, our youth, following Jesus. But I got to be honest with you, I was not happy about my parents' decision. They were not on my side. They were on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounter encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I'd exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me with the love of Christ, and I wanted nothing to do with it. My parents, they came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I told them to get out. They weren't preaching at me. They weren't telling me that I was living in sin, but you know, just the fact that they had been so radically transformed by the gospel, that was offensive to me. And I told them to get out. I didn't even give them an opportunity to call up their friends to pick them up. But before my dad left, he wanted to give me something. And it was his very first Bible. It was all dog-eared, it was, had the notes in the margins. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. I didn't even want to think that I actually might read it. But he left it on my kitchen counter anyway and walked out the door. And as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to, to, to do with God and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mother began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend literally hours every morning in her prayer closet on her knees reading the Bible crying out to God interceding for herself 
for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling home. I, well, I, actually, I first tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. <laughs> and she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no, no need for my parents. And remember, she loved bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So beware of your mother's prayers are going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But actually, my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation, no braiding words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul is not saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was... Excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. 
Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. <laughs> and he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, today that list is now, she kept adding to this list, and today this list now is longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And honestly, I was doing my best to stay to myself. You know, I did not want to mingle too much with those really bad people, you know, those criminals. And I passed by this garbage can. I was walking around, passed by this garbage can. And if you've never gone into jail before, if you've never done prison ministry, you wouldn't know that they don't take the trash out every day in jail. So the can was overflowing with garbage. It reeked. Flies were circling around it. And I looked at this trash and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months, three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell and I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, this is the Word of God. I wasn't even thinking that this will be the answer to some of my problems. Actually, I was simply thinking that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. <laughs> but as you know, as we know here at Montana Bible College, what we have in our hands, the very book from which we study and read, is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into her office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew right away that something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than 10 years to life. 
but news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed and I noticed in the metal bunk above me, someone had scribbled something and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God who was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I really wish I could tell you that at that moment, I said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect. Like I, I had no more problems. Far from the truth. God began convicting me of my dependencies, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. I'm in prison for drugs. That's the most obvious. But within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing into mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. I kept reading, and I came across some passages, three in the old, three in the new, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion on this issue. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he got a book, and he said, here, this book explains that view. So naturally, with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture, looking for justification. The chaplain says God blesses same-sex relationships. So I thought, I want to read that for myself. I just don't want to take his word. I want to see where it says that in the Bible. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship, 
by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By not allowing my sexuality to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First of all, I learned that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know that sounds weird, but the world kept telling me it's not, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, <laughs> sexual abstinence is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. <laughs> Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex for a few weeks, for a few months, that actually my sexuality does not have to be the core of who I am. I told myself before God loves me unconditionally, and that's true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, God loves me unconditionally, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. I know, I'm probably sure you have friends who say something to you like, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But you know, after reading the Bible several times, I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say that again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality alone. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I had thought in the past that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become heterosexual, that somehow the more sexually attracted I were to women, the more of a godly man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to put to death my sin nature every day. So actually, heterosexuality is not the goal. Besides, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither, neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. It's the wrong categories. These are secular categories. Instead, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm tempted or not, because we all will be tempted. Jesus Christ himself was tempted. What makes us think we will not be tempted, or somehow that if you're tempted, you don't have enough faith, or you're not mature enough. So it's not, so we will be tempted. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the ability, the spirit-wrought ability to be holy, even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted or not, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, 
God began to reveal His plan for my life. And He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison ministry, or my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry, I'd better learn more about the Bible. So I called and collected my parents, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time, which is in our hometown of Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it. I tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Well, these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. <laughs> I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my master's and exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul in 2014, and I also had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother, and she's back. Actually, I never travel alone, and, and, and the three of us, we will be speaking in the first session of the, of the conference tonight, uh, this afternoon, I'm sorry, uh, but we co-authored this book together called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter three. She wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, and then God in His power and His grace brought us all back together. All of these books, uh, are, uh, this first book has a free eight-week discussion guide that uh, several Christian high schools are now using as a textbook. Kind of cool. We never expected that. They're using it as a textbook to, I mean, because I know it's hard to talk about sex and teachers, parents are using this in their homes, in the schools. To, actually, uh, one of a Christian high school uh, teacher just emailed us and he said, uh, he said, I have the hardest time getting our kids to read their textbook but not yours. He says he has the opposite problem. He has kids that stay up all night reading the, you know, the book and they're finished in one night, the, uh, it, the, the book. And uh, it, because our goal was to not just tell you what holy sexuality is, but to show you and to be able to uh, help kids and youth and adults understand what biblical sexuality looks like. There was uh, one time we spoke at this one church and this older lady uh, went back after we spoke, went back to our book table, and she's like, I want 10 books. I was like, wow, you just need one. She's like, no, young man, I need 10. <laughs> she said, one for myself and nine for my grandchildren. That's a grandmother who takes seriously the God-given responsibility we have to not expose our kids, but equip them to better engage in this world. That we live in a completely confused, sexually liberated world, and we need more resources that kids can read. And I, honestly, people are like, when is it too early to talk to our kids? That's the wrong question. You know what's the right question? When is it too late? If we think 
that I'm going to start talking to my kids about sex in high school, think again, please. High school could be, I don't want to say too late because God can do anything, but it is definitely late. Even junior high, kids are ready. I'm telling you, in kindergarten, our kids can teach you a few things, what they already know about sex. You'd be surprised what kindergartners already know. So silence, my friends, is no longer an option. As uh, was talked about earlier, I'm, this new book, it's coming out. It's called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. I wanted the title to be Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by Biblical and Systematic Theology, but my publisher said that's not going to sell. I was like, I would buy that. <laughs> so um, we, we made it a little bit more appealing to, the broader, to a broader audience, but essentially this is a theology of sexuality. And I know you're thinking, well, I'm not a theologian. Well, what, I remember one of my first classes at, at Moody, theology classes, he was saying, we're all theologians. Theology is essentially just the knowledge of God. If you're a Christian, you better have knowledge of God, and that makes you a theologian. I actually argue that everyone is the theologian. Even an atheist is a theologian. He has thoughts for God. They're just wrong. So, you know, the question isn't whether you are or you're not a theologian. It's whether you are a good theologian or a bad theologian. Unbelievers are bad theologians. And unfortunately, many Christians are mediocre theologians. We have to have a better understanding of theology, systematic, like what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to the image of God and the doctrine of sin? How does that affect who we are as our identity? Because the world is telling you your identity is your sexuality, and we need to counter that and explain people who we are through God's word. So this book is coming out uh, November 20th, and I think because all you all are here at uh, Montana Bible College, uh, I think we can even do like, because they're coming out November 20th, and we'll be getting them probably in the mid-November, mid and we can even ship some out here to Montana Bible College if you want to pre-order some. We'll, I'll even pre-sign it if you want, um, but uh, we can do that there in the back as well. You know, I look back upon my life, and, um, you know, so many things that, that have been done wrong. And I've made a lot of bad decisions. And many of those decisions that have resulted in some big consequences. One of those being HIV positive. There's no cure. But as I thought about that, I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room, student, staff, administration, has ever been promised tomorrow here on this good earth. But don't we take it for granted? Do you know it took getting HIV for me to realize an important truth? That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. You know this world we live in today, it's a mess. Our country, we're like at each other's throats. It means nothing for us to destroy another person's dignity or respect or their, their reputation. Nothing for us to just go and demean another person or abuse another person. We look around the world and we have orphans, widows, disease, wars, 
earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes, floods. When I look at the world today, October 2018, I'm fully convinced we don't need another good Christian. A good Christian who might be a nice person, nice guy, but doing little for the kingdom of heaven. We do not need another good Christian. But what this world needs, what this world demands, are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't really care much what the person on the left says or what the person on the right says, but they're most concerned about what the Lord Jesus Christ says. Christians who know that they've been crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. The Lord Jesus Christ might be coming back this evening. Are we ready? We might leave this good earth tomorrow. Who knows? Are you making every moment count? This doesn't mean that you have to do something super extraordinary. But sometimes God views the regular, the normal, as extraordinary. And that, that might mean simply just pouring into that one person, your next door neighbor, who's hurting, or your coworker who doesn't know Christ, and making that difference one life at a time. That is great in God's eyes. Great doesn't mean, look at me, I'm so great. That's great in the eyes of man. But great in the guise of God means being the least of these. Not coming to be served, but coming to serve. Because whether you're ready or not, in the blink of an eye, Every one of us will one day stand before our God, our Creator. And my hope and prayer is that He can look at you face to face and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, enthroned above the heavens, the earth. You are the Alpha, the Omega. You are our strong tower. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Father, in you we find hope, in you we find life, in you we find everything. God, you are good. And in your infinite wisdom, you have called us to yourself. You have called us daughters and sons and allowed us to call you Abba, Papa. God, forgive us. Forgive us that we have squandered our time chasing after vain things of this world that don't really matter. Forgive us, God, for not putting your priority as our priority. God, help us to break free from our sin patterns that often just govern our days. God, give us victory, not on our own strength, but Holy Spirit, empower us. God, pour out your grace, Lord, that we know is more than just forgiving us of our sins, but empowering us to sin no more. God, I pray for Montana Bible College, Lord, to continue to be the light on a hill. 
God, I pray for every student here, every woman, every man studying to know you more, Lord, that even this week that you would transform us. God, I pray that we won't leave this building unchanged. <clears throat> Renew us, O oh God. Renew us for your glory. And we ask this, we plead this in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.